0: good evening there's a little town where all the residents are ducks and every sunday the ducks waddle out of their house and waddle down to the church building they enter the sanctuary and they sit in their little duck pews they sing duck songs and the duck minister comes up and opens up his duck bible and he begins to preach and he shouts these words he says ducks god has given you wings with wings you can fly, with wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you, no fences can hold you, you have wings. God has given you wings and you can fly like birds and all the ducks jump up and shout amen and they leave the church building and they waddle back home. As Americans, we sure do treasure our freedom, don't we? Freedom saturates the image of the United States. It's a vital part of our history and it's the motivation for us going forward. Freedom means everything to us. Blood was shed for it. We celebrate it every year with fireworks and a barbecue. We fly our flags and we pledge our allegiance to the flag. Yes, we certainly value our freedom, but we also take it for granted as well. If we're being honest, many Americans Don't always think about their freedom until it's threatened. I'm afraid that many Christians are no different. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. We have been set free from guilt and worry. We have been set free from the power of death. We have been set free from the burden of the law, but we don't always live like it. Many of us still live like slaves. We're free to spread our wings and soar like eagles, but instead we just waddle out of the church building and waddle home like those ducks. Nothing ever really changing in our lives. If you would, turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. In Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love." You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, what am I still, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another." So Paul makes it clear from the outset that Christ's will for the Galatians and for us was to enjoy the newfound freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, why is this so important? Well, because Jesus died for it. He shed his blood for it. And one of the treats of this freedom is that it releases us from the burden of upholding the law. You see, Paul was constantly dealing with this. He was constantly having to come back and do reprogramming because certain Judaizers were trying to meld parts of the law with the the Christianity that Christ died for. Such is the case here in Galatians 5 as he deals with the issue of circumcision. The root of this battle goes all the way back to the Israelites and the time that they said goodbye to Egypt into slavery. It didn't take long for God's people to become spoiled and self-serving. They forgot about that harsh treatment that they had to endure at the hands of Pharaoh, the oppression, the beatings, the humiliation. They also forgot about the miraculous power of God on display as he brought the 10 plagues. They forgot about the victory at the Red Sea. They also forgot about the water at Merah and the 12 springs of Elam. God was their map. He was their provider, their sustainer, but they were too self-absorbed. And in their self-absorbed pessimism, they were blinded to the joy of past deliverance. Now Egypt suddenly looked better than the wilderness. Exodus 16 verses 2 and 3 reads, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Seems pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? How could they be so ungrateful? How could they have forgotten so quickly the gracious blessings and wonderful providence of God. How could they long for Egypt? But before we go on condemning the Israelites, maybe we should take a hard look at our own lives. Have you ever taken your salvation for granted? You know, throughout Scripture, we find numerous examples reminding us of not being like the Israelites not going back and repeating their same mistakes and not taking our salvation for granted. Remember when the Israelites returned from captivity, a remnant comes home to rebuild and to settle back into their former existence, but apparently they didn't learn their lesson. Things got back to normal, all right, and that wasn't a good thing. Read through Ezra and Nehemiah sometime and you can see the plight of these Israelites and and this remnant. It was only about a hundred years post-exile that God's people fell right back into their same behavior. In In fact, it seems that that time spent in captivity really didn't teach them a whole lot. Israel was just as morally bankrupt as ever. And this new generation had not learned from their history. Redemption should have transformed them, but it didn't. You know, the the same could probably be said of us sometimes. It's an insult to God's goodness and holiness for me to accept redemption and then return to slavery. To not value redemption is the greatest, if not the greatest, one of the greatest abuses we could ever be guilty of. Because once you grasp and cherish the power of redemption, it changes you, not just for the here and now, but for the long haul. You're not a casual Christian. You, You don't allow ancillary things to steal your devotion. You don't place God on the back burner. You don't come to church when it's convenient. You don't worship selfishly. You you don't settle for apathy and complacency. You don't ask God, what have you done for me lately? No, your entire life is an offering of thanksgiving to the God who rescued you. You were Satan's slave, but now you have been set free and you are God's son or daughter. You were called to freedom, brethren. Paul says, You were called to free them. Do you know what that means? Do you grasp the full scope of your redemption? Has redemption transformed you? Paul says to the Galatians, you are free, and he says it emphatically. He literally says it was for freedom that Christ has freed us. Freedom is both a verb and a noun. This was Jesus' whole mission, to set us free, to rescue us, to deliver us from the bondage of sin, the slavery to sin, to bring us out of exile, out of darkness, and into His marvelous light. But here's the deal. This freedom isn't free. No freedom is. No freedom is ever free. And certainly that applies to our redemption. There is always a costly price to pay, and Jesus paid that price. Do you know what we call that? Yeah, we call that salvation, we call that redemption, we call that being rescued or delivered. The cross stands as our statue of liberty, symbolizing the freedom that is gained in Jesus Christ. But understand, freedom also does not mean total independence. Someone once said, Christianity promised to make men free, but it never promised to make them independent. You know, we talked about this a few months ago. You are never truly independent. You always operate under the authority of someone. There are always boundaries to our freedom, and certainly that is the case when it comes to the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. We have been set free, but Christ, though He made us free, did not make us independent. The freedom to do whatever we wish always leads. To sin, We can't live life on our own terms. It's not within us to direct our own steps. Total freedom leads to complete and utter anarchy of the soul. As you've heard me say numerous times, there is no such thing as unconditional independence we all serve something. Even those who do not serve Jesus Christ, we all serve something. Everyone has a master. The person who says, well, I don't serve anybody. I don't take orders from anybody. That's not true. Everyone serves a master. Everyone serves something or someone. The freedom that is found in Christ constitutes a transfer of ownership. You were bought at a price and you are indebted to the one who purchased you. So, now that we've got those basic concepts out of the way, let's, let's get back to the text. In verses 2 through 4 of Galatians 5, again reads, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace." You know, when my kids were little, I would get down in the floor and I would play with them, and one of the things that they loved to do was build with Legos, and we had a bunch of Legos left over from my time as a kid, and they loved playing with these things, so we'd pour them all out on the floor, and we would dig through them, and we would each build, you know, something uh, that we thought was of some sort of significance. But after a while, it was time to stop, and it was time to put all those little building blocks back in the box, and that was not as fun as it was dumping them out. Now, I could have told my kids, look, I'm going to leave here. When I come back, you better have all this picked up or I'm going to spank you. And they probably would have pouted and sulked and they would have been uh, upset by that. Having to put all those pieces back in the box and being told that if they didn't, they're going to get a spanking probably wouldn't have set too well with them. Or I could have done like I usually did and get down in the floor with them and say, all right, it's time to put these blocks back up. So let's all see how fast we can do this. Let's have a race and let's see who can get them put up the fastest. Well, that's a different attitude. They had a completely different demeanor about them. Well, now dad's not a tyrannical dictator telling us we have to put all this stuff up or he's going to spank us. Now he's out here with us. He's helping us put all these, these blocks back in the box, change their entire attitude. I think that's what's kind of going on here in Galatians 5. The key to freedom is whether we have to do the work ourselves in order to escape punishment, or does the Father come down and help us out? Verses 2 through 4 portray a way to stay under the yoke of slavery. So these verses serve as a warning, but then there's verse 5. Look at it again. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Verse 5 is an apt description of the Christian's life of freedom. There is hope in this freedom. There there isn't any hope in a life in chains and in bondage with sin. The hope that we long for is the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Two phrases sum this up very well. In verse 5, through the Spirit, the Christian life is a life of freedom because it is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Spirit means helper, counselor, comforter. So what we received at baptism is a gift that continues to fill us as we walk in the light. We are free because God has sent His Son to come and help us put all these blocks away. He does not stand aloof and make demands and then carefully scrutinize us to make us you know, feel less than who we truly are. He offers fellowship and help. And the other term that we see here or the other phrase is by faith. Through the Spirit and by faith. When we surrender to our Father for help, He more than comes through. Again, this is all about a relationship. Our fellowship with the Heavenly Father is what makes all of this possible. My kids could have been stubborn and said, forget it, I'm not picking up those blocks. I don't care what you tell me to do. But that would mean that they would forfeit my help, the help from their father. If we do that from a spiritual standpoint, we fall from grace. When we deny God's grace, we continue under a yoke of slavery. We choose To stay oppressed. Slavery is what happens when we fall from grace. Verse 4 says essentially the same thing as verses 2 and 3. It's all a warning. You choose slavery when you choose to be justified and to live under the law. If you want to take it upon yourself to live under the yoke of the law, then go right ahead but understand the spiritual ramifications of that. That's what Paul is laying out here. Your relationship to Christ is nullified and you're no longer free. The key to freedom is a dependent a dependence on God's grace. There is a great day coming in which Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats and the question is how are we waiting? Are we waiting for that day as free people or as slaves? Free people live like free people until the Lord returns and they do so by standing firm. That's really what Paul is stating here, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm in your freedom, Paul says. Do not budge. You know, I, I used to think that I was an easy child to raise. But after speaking with my parents and hearing story after story from my upbringing, stories that I had forgotten or conveniently spun to my advantage, after hearing those stories, I realized that maybe I wasn't as easy to raise as I thought. I had a tendency to go off and do my own thing. Maybe you were the same way, but we would go someplace, and my mother knew that I had a tendency to kind of wander off and do my own thing, so she would always say, okay, Chris, look me in the eye. She said, "If, if we get separated, just stay where you're at. You're easier to find that way. Don't go wandering off. Don't go looking for me. Just stay where you're at, and I'll come find you. You're easier to find if you just stay where you are. Stand firm in freedom and don't wander off. That's what Paul is saying here. Stand firm. Do you realize that he's saying stay in one place, guard yourself against wandering off from the freedom that is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul then speaks of one way that we can wander off, which is by submitting again to a yoke of slavery or by enslaving yourself to the law. He also proceeds to hand down a proven remedy that will, see, that will surely keep one grounded. Look at verses uh, 13 through 15. It says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Did you catch that, that, that last part? But through love, serve one another. Paul not only points out the problem, he offers a solution. And I love that. I love it when somebody not only brings me a problem, but they also have a solution in mind. Our elders here at Oldham Lane know that if I come to them with a problem, I'm also going to have a solution. They may not like the solution. They might find it rather annoying, and they probably do, and I, I readily admit that I can be annoying with it, but I don't believe in just bringing a problem without some sort of solution or at least a suggestion about how we can have. We've got enough problems to deal with. Give me a way that I might can solve it. Paul does that. He brings up the problem, but he gives a solution serve one another. It's interesting to note that the word serve or to serve here comes from the Greek word doulos, which means slave or to be a slave. You think about that for a moment. Christ set us free from slavery of sin only to make us slaves to one another through the love of Christ. Instead of being masters with many servants, we are called to be servants with many masters. Christ didn't just remove the chains and and free us from condemnation. He also unshackled us to a new life that is marked by holiness and love. Notice verse 14 again. for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ's love not only redeems us, but it should also control us. And if the love of Christ controls us, then we no longer live to indulge the flesh. We no longer live exclusively for ourselves. We live to please God. And what's one way of doing that? By serving other people, Right? I just love the paradox here. Paul is pointing out that Jesus has set you free from God's law in order to make you a slave for God's love. And to drive this point home, Paul takes it all back to the question that was causing all the confusion to begin with. What role does the law play in the life of a Christian? And he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Galatians were striving to keep the whole law in order to be saved. And Paul is trying to get them to understand the whole law in light of love. Understand, Paul's not teaching them to ignore the law. He's teaching them to fulfill the law. You cannot be saved by the law. However, that didn't mean that the law didn't have a purpose it had fulfilled its purpose. Jesus came bringing a new covenant, one that was marked by love and one that was drenched in love. You stand firm in your freedom and avoid wandering away back into slavery by casting the spotlight on others. Take the focus off yourselves. Serve You know, some in the church in Galatia were not doing that. In fact, they were doing quite the opposite. And Paul addresses some of these troublemakers who were spreading like a cancer throughout the church. And he says that they were nullifying the effects of Christ's atonement in their spiritual lives. They were being indebted in a way that was impossible to pay. They were causing Christians to fall from grace. They were hindering true obedience to God. They were destructive leaven. They were causing spiritual destruction. They were harmful to one another relationships. But perhaps the most gratifying language comes in verse 15 when he says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You know, it's one thing to bite and devour those outside of Christ. That's not good, but that's, that's one thing. It's, that's bad enough, but you would think that Christians would refrain from biting and devouring one another. Paul is kind of, I think I brought this up before, when you read through Paul's letters, sometimes you, you see him as that frustrated parent who's driving the kids and uh, in the station wagon or the minivan or the suburban and the kids are acting up in the back seat and, and he finally screams, be quiet back there, I'm going to pull this car over. I, I get the impression that's kind of how Paul reacts sometimes in his letters. He's driving the car and the kids, the church is, you know, they're fighting and screaming in the back and, and he reaches back and says, I'm going to pull this car over if you don't settle down. And Paul's about to pull the car over. He's had enough. One of the worst things that could ever plague the Lord's body is Christian cannibalism. And that's what Paul is warning against here. That's what the Galatians were facing. Paul was fighting this. When Christians bite and devour one another, it disrupts unity. It destroys the work of God. It takes the focus off of Jesus and the gospel. It sends the message that God loves you, but we hate each other. It gives the devil a reason to rejoice. And meanwhile, the lost are still lost, right? The mission is still not being carried out because we're too busy being being derailed by one another. Imagine that you're one of those crazy people who wants to climb Mount Everest. So you get a group of friends, and neither you nor your friends have a whole lot of climbing experience. So you've enlisted the help of a guide, a Sherpa, who has ascended and descended Everest several times. And my guess is, you're going to listen to whatever he tells you. My guess is, you're going to do exactly what he says, because you want to reach the summit and you want to get back down safely. So as you near the summit, every step is a careful one and you have to understand the gravity of the situation. You have to be aware of what's at stake with every step that you take. One wrong move, one careless step, and it could be your last. Other people could also die along with you. There's too much at stake to wander off from the guide. And in this passage... Paul wants the Galatians and us in the process to understand what's at stake. He wants us to understand the gravity of the situation. You know, some like to buy into an equation that reads something like Jesus plus something else equals acceptance from God. Jesus plus the law or whatever. Jesus plus something else equals acceptance from God. Jesus plus circumcision equals acceptance from God. You know, the only equation that works in God's divine arithmetic is this one. Jesus plus obeying the gospel equals acceptance from God. This equation equals true freedom, which should equal us standing firm and serving others.